Well, friends, the 20th century witnessed a great attack upon Orthodox Christianity in the form of what is known as theological liberalism or modernism. And one man who was a staunch defender of the true Orthodox Christian faith was a man, J. Gresham Machen. He was a professor at Princeton Seminary, and when that seminary turned liberal, he helped found Westminster Theological Seminary. And he wrote a book in the 1920s entitled Christianity and Liberalism. You see, among the essentials of the faith, which was being denied by these theological liberals, was the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, that God had sent his son to be a substitute for sinners in order to save them. And the crowning act of Jesus' substitution was his death upon the cross, on which cross he bore the sins of all who would believe in him. But liberalism then and now denies the substitutionary atonement of Christ. In its place, it presents Jesus as a teacher of morals and ethics, a fine example of humanity. They would call him the fairest flower of humanity. And we're to follow his example and we're to follow his teachings, but that's as far as it goes. They have no place for a cross on which Jesus died. He, if they have any use of the cross, it would be, well, Jesus was the supreme example of self-sacrifice for a good cause. But many liberals, then and now, disdain the doctrine of blood atonement. In fact, they used to call it slaughterhouse religion. But rightly did Machen label his book or entitle his book Christianity and Liberalism. Because what he was showing is that liberalism, with all of its denials, is not true Christianity. Because Christianity is all about the cross of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul makes this plain when in 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, the Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. And then in chapter 2, in verse 2, he says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. A crossless Christianity is no Christianity at all. The cross is the centerpiece of revealed religion. It is the high point. It is the apex of Christianity. All history before the cross looks forward to the cross of Jesus. And subsequently, everything looks back to the cross of Jesus. Now, this is not to make too little of our eschatological future hope. But if you have a solid hope for the future, it's because of what you have done with the cross that happened in the past. That complex event surrounding the cross... The death of Jesus on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his enthronement at the right hand of God is what Christianity is all about. What happened on the cross, as interpreted in the epistles, is the core, it's the heartbeat of Christianity. And so we come this morning in our study of Mark's gospel to that most crucial and momentous of events, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And turn, please, to Mark chapter 15. And as we come to this 
passage dealing with the crucifixion, we've already seen that the only thing Jesus suffered was what he suffered was not what he suffered on the cross. We have already seen the sufferings of Jesus, that they were very extensive and very intense apart from the cross. The cross is not all that the man of sorrows suffered. But although it is not the circumference of his suffering, it is the center of his suffering. It is the apex. It is the climax. And it is the most theologically significant of the sufferings of Jesus. And this morning, as we come to the account of the crucifixion of Jesus, we're going to focus our attention on the physical agony of Jesus on the cross. I pick up at Mark 15, the second part of verse 20, which says, And they led him out to crucify him. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And we're going to end there. To show you that a sermon doesn't need to have three points, I have only two points this morning. The sufferings of Jesus bearing, in bearing the cross, and then the sufferings of Jesus upon the cross. So first, the sufferings of Jesus in bearing the cross. And first, we want to note that Jesus carries his own cross. Jesus has been sentenced by Pilate, who was under extreme pressure from the Jewish leaders. He's assigned Jesus to be crucified. Verse 15 says, he handed him over to be crucified. Now, it appears that the Roman practice was to have the man being crucified to carry his own cross to the place of execution. And the fact that Jesus began to carry his own cross is clear from the Gospel of John 1917, where we read, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull. Now, something that has divided commentators is what did Jesus carry? Did he carry only the cross beam or did he carry the entire cross? One commentator believes that he carried only that transverse beam. But respectable commentators, Lenski and Hendrickson, believes he carried the whole cross. Their argument would be it's not qualified. It says he carried the cross, so we assume he carried the entire cross. Now, the route that was followed to the place of execution normally included busy streets, and that was for a purpose. They wanted to frighten and intimidate the people as a deterrent. In other words, saying, look, if you did what this guy did, this is what's going to happen to you. So the path that Jesus carried that cross would have down, been down busy streets. And then the condemned man would either wear or have carried in front of him a wooden board on which in letters of ink or burned in specific his specific crime. And then that would later be fastened to the cross above the head of the victim. It was kind of like in olden days when they would have a public hanging for criminals. Or in New England, in Puritan times, they would put people in the stocks and that would be a public humiliation or the scarlet letter that someone would wear. This was all to intimidate others and to be a deterrent for them committing the same crime. 
So the cross is laid upon Jesus, and he proceeds to carry it through the thronged streets with wide-eyed, gawking spectators, and he's going to the place where he will be crucified on that very cross that he's carrying. But then we see that Jesus collapses under the cross. John's gospel, as we saw, tells us that Jesus began to carry the cross. But then we read here in our text in verse 21, they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Somebody else picks up the cross of Jesus. This implies, it makes very clear, that Jesus could not carry the cross the entire distance to the place where he was be crucified. Who knows how many times he staggered and fell under the weight of the cross. And we can readily picture these hardened Roman soldiers who are part of the execution team using every means possible to try to impel their victim forward. They would curse at him, perhaps. They would kick him. They would give him blows. They would shout at him. But Jesus apparently reached the point where no cursing, no shouting, no, no whipping, no kicking could prompt his feeble frame to continue to stagger forward under that burden. And let's take a moment to remember what Jesus had endured in the previous 15 hours prior to this time when he collapses in physical exhaustion. This was a little before nine in the morning. What happened 15 hours before? Well, it began with the Last Supper in the upper room, which he turned into the Lord's Supper. Now, you might say that was a friendly time. He was with his disciples. Yeah, but Judas was there, and Judas was going to betray him, and it was from that supper that Judas made his ominous departure as a traitor. You think that weighed heavily on the heart of Jesus? Of course it did. And then there was the Garden of Gethsemane, where he made that agonizing prayer. Hebrews says he cried out with loud cryings and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Luke tells us that the capillaries under his skin had burst and, and blood came through the pores of his skin. Such was the anxiety and, and pressure of having to face the cross. What an emotional Emotionally and physically exhausting ordeal, that would have been in the garden. And then there was the trauma of the arrest, the treacherous, hypocritical betrayal by Judas, who betrayed him with a kiss, the indignity of, of being pursued as if he were a robber. And then all of his friends, all the other disciples, abandoned him. And then what follows, he faces the trial before the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, with their blatant, brazen hypocrisy. They bring forth false witnesses that lie about him. Then they taunt him. They hit him in the face. They spit at him all in the earliest hours of the morning. And then they sentence him to death. But then between that and another meeting where they have to formalize his sentence of death, he beholds Peter in the courtyard his most professedly loyal disciple, having denied him three times. And then the charges are formalized in a subsequent meeting of the Sanhedrin, and they condemn him to death. And then the civil trials before the Gentile Romans. He stands before Pilate. He's shipped off to Herod. Mark doesn't record that, but remember, Herod has 
mock reverence toward Jesus. He's hoping to see a miracle, and Jesus answers him nothing. Then he's sent back to Pilate. He sees Pilate being pressured by the Jewish leaders and intimidated. He sees the Jewish leaders turning the crowd against him. All this time, he is silent. And then he sees the moral cowardice of Pilate, who jettisons all justice and delivers him over to be crucified. Then he's brutally scourged, the thongs, bone and metal plated, shredding his taut, bent over back into ribbons of bloody flesh. Then, as we saw last week, the soldiers have their fun with him. Mocking his claims to kingship, they throw a ratty old Roman uh, soldier's robe over his lacerated back. They press a crown of thorns into the flesh of his scalp. They give him a stick for a scepter. They mock his dignity. They mock his majesty. They mock his power. Friends, that was what Jesus experienced in the 15 hours before this heavy wooden cross was laid upon his back, which was raw, open wounds. And he got to the place, understandably, where his human frame could bear no more. And the soldiers probably feared that he would expire, he would die before he got to the the place of execution. And they didn't want that to happen. And so they have to come up with an alternative plan. He's unable to go any further. And so we see that Simon carries the cross for Jesus. Again, verses 21 and 22. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear the cross. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. That word pressed into service, what they did with Simon, is originally a a Persian word, and it referred to a public courier who was stationed by the king at certain locations, and he would be able to provide uh, horses, vessels, or even men. And the word came to mean to compel one to go on a journey or to bear a burden. It's the same word Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, if somebody compels you to go one mile, what do you do? To show your Christian grace, go with them an extra mile. And the Romans could constrict anybody to do anything. The Romans had the authority to press anybody into service, to requisition them. And so they realized this man's not going to make it to, to, the, to, to Golgotha. He needs help carrying the cross. No Roman would carry the cross. That was beneath his dignity. Roman citizens were not permitted to be crucified because it was, it was a dishonor to a Roman citizen. A Jew wouldn't voluntarily volunteer to carry the cross because to the Jew, the cross represented a curse, according to the Old Testament. So they, they come upon the, they choose the first likely candidate they see. And uh, that was Simon. Apparently, according to Matthew's version, the, proce- the procession was just coming out of the city. And this man, Simon, for some unknown reason, had just come from the countryside. His name was Simon. And he's given the unique task of shouldering the cross of Jesus for the remaining distance to Golgotha. Now, Simon was from Cyrene. It's a plateau about 10 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It's in modern-day Libya. He was likely a Jew. Maybe he was from Cyrene and coming to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Acts chapter 2 reports that there were some Cyrenian Jews who had come 
to Jerusalem for the Passover. There was also a, a Cyrene, Cyrenians in the synagogue in Jerusalem, the synagogue of the freedmen. So we don't know much about his background. The noteworthy thing about Simon here, he's identified according to his sons, Rufus and Alexander. Luke and Matthew don't include that. Why does Mark say that Simon was the father of Rufus and Alexander? Well, I think there's a reason for that. Mark was written to the Romans, and it appears that these men may have been known in Rome. When Paul, writing to the Roman church, closes out his letter with greetings in Romans 16, listen to what he says, Romans 16, 13. He's greeting all these people in Rome. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. And commentators say it is very likely that this Rufus was the son of Simon. And his mother, Paul says, his mother and mine, this Rufus's mother, which could have been Simon's wife, was kind of like a mother to the Apostle Paul. She was very motherly. If that is the case, and commentators say it is very likely that Simon, who carried the cross of Jesus, became a Christian as a result of carrying that cross. Married a Christian woman, and his sons, Rufus and Alexander, became Christians and were well-known to the church in Rome. What was it that Simon saw that day that made him become a Christian? Did he see something of the dignity of Jesus, his serenity, the majesty of his demeanor? Whatever it was, there's likelihood that Simon, who carried the physical cross of Jesus, became a Christian as a result of that experience. What an amazing thing to contemplate, that the man who physically carried the cross of Jesus came to have his own sins carried away by that same cross. And it made me think of the song that we sing in December, Mary, did you know? And has that line captivated you as it has me? Where the songwriter says to Mary, the one that you deliver will soon deliver you. I don't know about you, but that does something to me. Mary, the baby that will you will soon deliver, born of your womb, will soon deliver you from your sins for all eternity. And imagine the thought that the man who carried the actual wooden cross on which Jesus was crucified would have had his own sins carried away by that cross just a few hours later. And we don't know what it was that turned him to Christ. Let's reenact the scenario. He's returning from the countryside. He's about to enter a gate of the city. And he's there as a pious Jew to celebrate Pentecost, or, or rather Passover. But before he can enter the gate, he hears this, this loud, clamoring crowd of people. And they're coming his way. He's wondering, what's, what's this commotion all about? And as he wends his way through the crowd, he finds himself in, in front of the other bystanders. But the throng has ceased to move forward. And he sees several Roman soldiers in full military dress. And you can imagine the early sun glinting off of their helmets and their breastplates. And one might be cracking a whip and shouting, and another is kicking what appears to be a man lying prostrate on the ground. 
Atop the man is a large wooden cross. Now, this would not have been an unfamiliar sight. Crucifixions were frequent. It would be kind of like us coming upon a parade. Have you ever done that? I remember a few years ago, I'm traveling through New Holland, and all of a sudden, oh, there's a parade going on here about some event. And so I was detoured around Main Street, Route 23 in New Holland. And so he realizes, I've come upon a crucifixion. And um, before he can, and then a soldier gruffly commands him to pick up the cross. And he would have been stunned by that, taken aback. But before he can respond, perhaps two soldiers grabbed him, one by each arm, leading him forcibly to over where the downed man kneels, trying to pick himself up. And so Simon picks, puts his shoulder under the cross and proceeds toward the destination, which is Golgotha which is Aramaic for the Hebrew galileth, meaning skull. The Greek word is cranion, from which we get cranium. That's our skull. And the Latin word is calvaria. That's why we say calvary, because it was shaped like a human skull. The place where Jesus was crucified was a place shaped like a human skull. Who knows what Simon witnessed that day? Again, was it the dignity he saw in Jesus, the serenity, the solemn silence, the demeanor with which he bore the suffering, or maybe it was something Jesus said from the cross, the darkening of the sky. Whatever it was, it seems that in God's providence, this man was chosen for this unique role of shouldering the literal cross of Jesus, and it appears to have impacted him for all eternity. But now consider, so, so that's the suffering of Jesus in bearing the cross. Now look, at the suffering of Jesus on the cross. First, consider the fact of the crucifixion that is stated in the text. Friends, the report of the actual crucifixion of Jesus in all of the Gospels is made with an amazing economy of words. It's brief, it's terse, it's to the point. Mark 15, 24 reads simply, and they crucified him. Three words, in the Greek, and they crucified him. Listen to what some commentators say about the brevity of this statement. William Hendrickson says, note how few words, in the original only three, and they crucified him, are used to indicate this enormously significant event. Lane, the commentator, says, the fact of Jesus' crucifixion is recorded with utmost restraint. The details were too familiar in the Roman world to require extended comment. Spurgeon says, in his commentary on Matthew's version, there is a world of meaning in that short sentence, and they crucified him. Leon Morris, commenting on Luke's version, very simply, Luke tells us of the crucifixion of Jesus, the supreme sacrifice for the salvation of mankind. And Lenski, I quote at greater length, among the astounding features of the scriptures are the records of the supreme events. One word only to describe the scourging of God's son. One only for the crucifixion. One only for the resurrection. Events so tremendous, words so restrained. Who guided all these writers to write in such an astonishing manner? 
This is one of the plain marks of divine inspiration in the very product itself. Matthew uses only a participle as if the crucifixion were the minor act that was subsidiary to the apportioning of the clothes. Matthew 27, 35. And when they had crucified him, the participle literally having crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Luke has a simple aorist punctiliar to express the fact when they came to the place called the skull there they crucified him and the criminals john likewise mark alone has staurausen auton which is a present tense and they were crucifying him the vivid descriptive present tense lenski says the intention of all the evangelists is evidently listen to this not to describe the awful act of crucifixion listen to these words the fact not the details, is to fill the reader's mind. Simple. And they crucified him. No detail. None of the gory details. Because what Lenski says, it's the fact of the, res of the crucifixion that matters, not the details. This is worth contemplating. The scriptures do not elaborate on the details of the crucifixion. They're not giving specific descriptions to evoke emotions of pity and sympathy and to tug at our heartstrings. The crucifixion is, matter, is, is mentioned in a rather matter-of-fact way, and they crucified him. Is it, as the one commentator says, because crucifixion was all too familiar with the readers? I don't think so, because it wasn't written only for the first century. It's written for all time. It's written for us, and we're not familiar with the details of crucifixion. I think Lenski is more to the point when he says the brevity of the account, and they crucified him, is because it is the fact and not the details that are to fill the reader's mind. It's the fact of the resurrection and the inspired interpretation that's given by Jesus and the apostles that is the most important thing. Friend, it's the meaning that matters most. The meaning of the crucifixion not the gory details that matter most. And I was thinking of the parallel with the birth of Jesus. When our society celebrates the birth of Jesus in December, how many people are familiar with the manger, the star, the shepherds, the wise men and their gifts, and the angels? A lot of people, right? You ask the average person, man on the street, woman on the street, and they know, oh yeah, the manger and the stars and the wise men. But how few can explain the biblical gospel, right? They get all caught up perhaps with the sentimentality of the baby in the manger. But how few really understand the gospel, why he was born. And that's the way it can be with crucifixion. It can be sentimentalized. In 2004, as many of you know, there was a movie that was put out, The Passion of the Christ, by Mel Gibson. And I am sure, I did not see the movie, kind of on principle, I don't judge anyone who did, but I don't want my view of Jesus represented by even the best actor in the world. No one can represent, to my mind or yours, the God-man. And I don't want the image of a mere actor representing the Lord. I'll take the image I get of Jesus from the pages of the Bible. So I didn't go to see the movie. 
But I know that a lot of people who left that theater with wet eyes, they were moved by the details of the suffering of this man. They were moved with a sense of pity for this man. But I dare say very few came out of that movie understanding why he died. Mel Gibson's not a Christian. Mel Gibson doesn't understand the gospel, and it wasn't conveyed in the movie. Do you see the point? You can be moved in your sentiment and emotions by a man dying on the cross, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is why he died. Meaning, the meaning of crucifixion matters most. And so we must put our emphasis where the scriptures do, on the fact and the significance of the crucifixion, not on the gory details of the process. But I go on to say this, the, fact about the, the facts about the crucifixion may be gleaned from scripture and history. Having said what I just said, does that preclude us from understanding something about the mode of execution and the way Jesus died. He didn't just die. He died in a particular way, in a particular manner. And the manner in which Jesus died was especially agonizing and humiliating. And understanding the details of his suffering does give us a heightened appreciation for the greatness of his love for us. As long as we keep the fact and the meaning of the crucifixion central and don't make that out and, and don't fixate on how he died, it is not insignificant to consider how he died. And so I want to take a few minutes to help us understand what was involved in crucifixion. First, I note that crucifixion was employed by many nations, including the Roman Empire. Rome generally reserved it for slaves and for those who had committed grosser or more serious crimes. And so the procedure was this. The outstretched arms of victims would be tied or nailed to the crossbeam. His feet would then likewise be tied or nailed. There was a block of wood on the main post that would support most of the body weight. In the case of Jesus, his hands and feet were not tied, they were nailed. Because in John 20, when Thomas, doubting Thomas, wants to see the nail holes in his hands, Jesus extends his hands, having nail prints in them. So Jesus was not tied, Jesus was nailed. Now, I didn't know this, but apparently there was not a lot of historical evidence that nails were used in crucifixion. But in 1968, in June of that year, Israeli scholars discovered at a place called Givat HaMivtar in northeast Jerusalem, a Jewish tomb yielding the first authenticated evidence of a crucifixion in ancient times. And the remains of that crucified man indicated that the lower calf bones had been broken and the heel bones had been transfixed with a single iron nail. The legs were adjacent next to each other, the knees bent, and the right one overlapping the left. The trunk of the body was contorted. The upper limb stretched out with a nail in each forearm. And the pottery found in that tomb dates from the early first century, before the mass crucifixions that took place after 70 AD. The cross apparently was not much larger than a man, 
And so the crucified man's feet would not have been very far from the ground. Sometimes the cross was made higher to make the victim more visible. And that appears to be the case with Jesus, because in our text in verse 36, it says someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him. Apparently they needed a reed to extend it. So apparently Jesus' cross was not close to the ground. It was more lifted up. And in verse 30, they mock Jesus and say, come down from the cross. So in Jesus' case, he may have been more elevated than others. In the case of those who were tied to the cross, death was a slow process. It would have taken days for them to die. Obviously, if a man is nailed to the cross, it speeds up the process. And in Jesus' case, that was so. Breaking the legs also speeded up the process, but John 19 tells us it was not done in Jesus' case in order to fulfill prophecy. What physical agonies would Jesus have endured on the cross? Well, there would have been severe inflammation. There would have been a swelling of the wounds where the nails were. There would have been excruciating pain from torn tendons. In fact, the word excruciating comes from the word for cross, ex crux excruciating pain is pain from the cross. There would have been terrible discomfort from the strained position of the body, a throbbing headache and burning thirst. And John is reported, Jesus said, I thirst, I am thirsty. Then we want to know the full strength of the crucifixion is endured by Jesus. Verse 23 says, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Myrrh added to wine would have had the effect of stupefying the victim and deadening his pain, much like morphine to a dying person. Some would say that this myrrh was offered out of sympathy. Others would say, no, it was more to calm the victim. Some think it was a mixture prepared by Jewish women out of compassion, working with Proverbs 31.6, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. In any case, whatever the intent, Jesus refused repeated attempts. It's the imperfect tense. Repeated attempts to dull the pain were refused by Jesus. And even there, we speculate, why did Jesus refuse the, the pain meds to ease his pain? Some say it was because that his mind might be clear in order to say what he needed to say on the cross. He didn't want a dull, fuzzy mind. Others would say it was to endure the full measure of pain of the cross without avoiding a single agony. Revelation 14.10 says the worshipers of the beast, unbelievers, will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength, in the cup of his anger. Sinners are going to drink the full strength of God's wrath. Might it be that Jesus, as our substitute, said, I'm going to drink that cup down to its dregs. I'm going to take the wrath my people deserve in full strength. So he did not allow the pain to be ameliorated by taking that myrrh mixed with wine. Well, brothers and sisters, that's the end of my exposition. I want to make a few applications. What should we take away from this aspect of the crucifixion, the physical suffering of Jesus? We'll get to the other suffering 
God willing, next week. But this is the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. First of all, learn from the cross of Jesus Christ the vital importance of inspired interpretation of redemptive events. You see, God's pattern in redemptive history is to act and then interpret. Actually, more fully, he predicts, he acts, and then he interprets. I won't take the time to turn us to Exodus, but that's what he did with the great Old Testament salvation, which was the deliverance of his people out of Egypt, right? He first predicted it. He told them the death angel is going to pass over. Put blood on the doorpost and lintel and you will be spared. But the firstborn of the Egyptians will die. I'm going to spring you. I'm going to free you. And I'm predicting it. Then you come next. That's in Exodus 12. In Exodus 14, we have the great event of passing dry shod through the Red Sea. Then the, the, when the chariots of Pharaoh follow, God brings the waves upon them and their bloated bodies show up on the shore. You have the prediction of the salvation. You have the event itself. And then you have the song of Moses, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. You have prediction, act, and interpretation. And that's what we have with Jesus. Was the crucifixion of Jesus interpreted or rather predicted? Yeah. 700 years before Jesus came, we read in, in Isaiah 53, um, 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The crucifixion of Jesus was predicted five, 700 years before he came. And Jesus himself, we saw it in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. He repeats, the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to the chief priests and elders, and he's going to suffer, and he's going to die, and three days later, rise from the dead. Over and over, he's, repeat, he's predicting his death. Here we have the event itself. What follows is the interpretation. What did it mean? What did it mean? Well, let's learn that the meaning of Christ's suffering on the cross was the accomplishment of redemption. A lot of Jews were crucified in Jerusalem. What was different about that crucifixion from all others? We have the inspired interpretation of that crucifixion. Paul says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says, Christ also died for sins once for all the righteous, for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Friends, the interpretation of that crucifixion is your and my eternal salvation if we are believers in Jesus. It means, first of all, your justification, that you are declared righteous in the sight of God, absolutely sinless in the sight of God because you've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Romans 5, 9, much more having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. A lot of Jewish blood was shed in crucifixions. That blood justifies us. It means your sanctification. Romans 6, 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. If you, by faith in Jesus, are in union with him, it means slave. You are no longer a slave to sin. Those sinful habits which you couldn't break, those things you knew were wrong, but you couldn't break them, now are broken. Because of your union with Christ and sin no longer has 
dominion over you because of that blood from that crucified man. And it means your glorification. 1 Timothy 2.11, it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we also live with him. And when Christ died by union with him, we are said to have died with him. And as he's alive now by the resurrection, we too will be made alive in the resurrection. That's the significance of the cross. That's what must be grasped. The cross was the grand redemptive act of history, casting its light backwards so that everybody in the Old Testament who believed in the Messiah to come was saved by the death of Jesus on that cross. And everybody who has lived after that, all of us, are saved by the blood shed by that man in that crucifixion on that cross. But then, learn that the measure of Christ's suffering on the cross is the measure of his love. You got my point this morning that the main thing is not all the details of his suffering. You can get all that. You can come away from a Mel Gibson movie and say, oh, I feel so bad for that man. And you can be moved in your heartstrings and not have a clue as to why he died. It's not so much the details of his crucifixion that matters, but the meaning of it. That is central. He died to save me. But having said that, the measure of his suffering on the cross is the measure of his love. He didn't just die anyway. And Philippians makes that point. He was obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. That even counts for something. It was a horrific death. We want to take account of the fact that the measure, that the, that the way he died is the measure of his love for us. He died the most agonizing way man had devised to torture his fellow man. He loved his people, you, so much that he allowed himself to have a heavy, coarse cross of wood laid across his bloody, shredded back with its gaping wounds. He loved you so much as to stagger under the weight of that cross until nearly every drop of energy was gone and he lay exhausted, wasted on the ground under its load. He who could have called 12 legions, 72,000 angels to set him free. And he loved you so much to allow them, those Roman soldiers, to bend his legs, overlap his feet, drive a single spike through the, the ankles, tearing his tendons and chipping his bones. And he loved you enough to be lifted up, suspended between heaven and earth, his body in painful contortion, his wounds throbbing with inflammation, his head pulsating with pain, his body screaming in pain from torn tendons, having to lift himself up in agony to suck gulps of air, his ripped up back pressed against the rough-grained wood. That's how much he loved you, believer. That's the measure of his love for us. He didn't just die any death. He died the death on the cross. And we need to return love back to him. And I say in closing, if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, do you see how much Jesus did out of love to spare you from hell? To take the punishment you deserved in hell all upon himself so that you could be spared hell and given heaven, total forgiveness of sin. If anyone here is an unbeliever, I'll ask, I ask you, what will you say when you stand before God 
and you want to get into heaven, and Jesus is the only way. Will you say, well, I, I didn't know. Well, you can't say that now, because this morning you heard. You could say, yeah, I heard what Jesus did, but I didn't care. I hope you will not say that, because it will not go well with you in that day. Let's pray, sing a song, and then we'll come to the supper. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying in our place, for suffering all that agony of body, an agony of soul that we have yet to contemplate. And you did it because you loved us to spare us the pains of hell. We thank you.